Welcome, everybody, to the MOH Podcast. This is episode number four, and I'm Jim Patton. I'm your host. I'm going to be bringing you a tape today from Winky Prattney that was probably, it sounds like it was probably recorded around 1971. And uh, I got to say this for those of you that uh, are listening to these podcasts, that for the most part, many of the tapes will be like this one. That is to say, they're only for those who have a real disposition to win the lost for Christ. Uh, this is not a bunch of stuff necessarily about make you feel good or hope you're going to feel better after you listen to this message. This is stuff for the hardcore disciple. And uh, this is one of those messages that's really, uh, as Winky will mention here, it's it has a couple of aspects to it. One he's going to mention is how to study the world without becoming worldly and how to be holy without living in a hole. Uh, just a couple things I wanted to mention Winky's going to mention that there are pastors who are complaining to him that uh, what's happened to the kids in my youth group, they've gone off to college and they've joined the SDS. For those of you who don't know what the SDS is or was, uh, the SDS was this, uh, an organization called Students for a Democratic Society. They were a student activist movement in the 60s that were based on Marxism and communism, and they were, they were uh, trying to figure out how to change their world. And a couple other things uh, he mentioned sometimes when you're talking about, for instance, he'll talk about uh, when you listen to the news, watch the mainstream news, but also uh, check out the underground news. Uh, there used to be what we called underground papers, and these were papers that were not mainstream. Even, even the Rolling Stone magazine was initially kind of an underground kind of thing. There was one in uh, Los Angeles, the Hollywood Free Press. And uh, they were what we would have called today the alternative press. And we have to be, we have to be uh, uh, able to look at other points of view other than the mainstream media. So when he talks about the underground, you just think Internet. When he talks about recording things like with a tape recorder, think about just recording things with your iPhone. Uh, he's just talking about being, uh, using technology to help you um, capture information. Anyway, that's, that's enough of that. So uh, here's Winky with uh, his message uh, today, and I uh, hope you'll enjoy this one. It's called... Renaissance Man and Reformation Man. Here it is. How to study the world without becoming worldly. Another title is How to be a Renaissance Man. A man who communicates to a Renaissance Man. And then the second one is How to be holy without living in a hole. Which is How to be a Reformation Man. The declension of spiritual awakening takes place in three steps. The first generation experiences some genuine moves of God and then, of course, knows why those moves happen. When people begin to obey God again, we call it revival. Simplest definition, a new beginning of obedience to God. And that has to do with action. It has to do with experience with God. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you're my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth. The truth shall set you free. James points out to us that uh, action is always tied in. The true faith is faith that acts. True faith is faith that obeys God, in, even though it's costly. And this is revival. We call that revival. The second half is a renewal of what God is actually saying to this generation. And we call that Reformation. When both these two individual facets strike a nation, that nation begins to change for God. But both are necessary. Experience alone is not enough. Facts alone are not enough. We must have people who know the facts, 
and have the experiences that go with them. Reformation, uh, A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, we don't need just people who can preach on prophecy. We need preachers with a gift of prophecy. And the prophet is the man who can look through the whole ticker tape parade and see where the parade, why the parade began in the first place, where it's headed to, and more particularly, who is riding up front in the seat of honor. He said, a hundred years from now, people will look back on this generation. If there are any people here, and they will say, this is what was wrong with the church spiritually the year 1970 or the year 1971. But we need people now who can look now at the world and say, this is what is wrong now and do something about it. The second generation, that's the first generation. So you see a genuine spiritual awakening. The second generation, the line begins to be drawn and we start to see a division between two kinds of Christians, the ones who are feelers and the ones who are thinkers. That split takes place. One half of the group of people who remember what it was like to move with God and uh, so they, they've got to keep the move going and they will keep it going regardless of what else has happened, see? And this uh, polarization starts taking place, a dichotomy, a split between um, this beautiful unity before. Here's generation two. These people down here, they have the Singh brother. We have the real facts and we'll die protecting these. Now the third generation arises. And the third generation are the kids who grow up and look at their parents. And this kid says to his dad, Dad, why do we always have to go down to an altar and weep? And <laughs> dad says, well, son, we always, we, we, uh, I mean, that's what, that's what uh, we have to do. That's what we've always done. Your grandmother did it, and I've done it. And uh, the kid says, why? Well, I believe there's something here in the Bible about um, covering the altar of the Lord with your tears. This kid says, oh, really? Uh, how do you know that the Bible is right? And the guy says, what? What did you say? The kid says, how do you know that it's true? He says, I've bought up an atheist in my bosom. See, this kid is uh, horrified, see? The kid is asking questions. Then he says, kid, you do not have to have facts. You take it by faith. And making a non-Christian statement when he says so. Because this God who says, come let us reason together, also says, you prove all things. You hold fast to that which is good. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, uh, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, transfigured by the renewal of your minds. We have people up here who have minds like wet spaghetti. Only worse, wet spaghetti thinks probably more. Then we find this kid. And where does he grow up? Well, he grows up where dad knows all the answers. In the morning, before he gets his Wheaties, he has a Bible study on the meaning of the third thread on the tabernacle curtains and its relevance to the messianic age. You know, that's, this kid wakes up with those. And he takes a good, long, hard look at his parents and he says, well, this is brilliant 
Bible study. And the question that he is asking really is this. What does that mean? Does it really work? And he looks at his parents, but unfortunately this person does not have the experience that goes with his facts. If the facts are right to begin with, and the kid comes to this conclusion, on the basis of what I have seen, if what I have heard about is genuine Christianity, then I don't want Christianity. It has no answers for me. It gives me no meaning. It gives, if it couldn't change my parents, it's not going to change me. Drops it. Where does this kid come out? I often find him in Bible colleges, studying, 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 ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or maybe he just drops out and becomes a Marxist. I was invited up to a church. The pastor said, could you come up and speak to the kids? I said, why? He said, all my best spiritual kids have joined the SDS. Up here. None of this. And then this kid, what does he do? You find him on Telegraph Avenue. You find him in the hippie search for meaning. Not in fact. He's hung those up. He's out experiencing. Here's the third generation, and that generation is our generation. And to restore this, we need men who have both experience and facts, who know how to tie knowledge of God, that is true knowledge of God, into an experience that makes sense to the world around them. That is our need. Now, two kinds of men are necessary in this world because the problem is more complex than it at first appears. That two kinds of men are summed up here by Sherwood Elliot Wirt in an excellent article all of you should get hold of. Get Christianity Today from somebody and copy off May 22nd, 1970 issue. The article by Sherwood Elliot Wirt called Moving Up in the Mass Media. He says this, two types of men exemplify the goals we seek. The Renaissance and the Reformation man. These two men, he said, originated in the same period of, the, of history, but one is different from the other. First he talks about the Renaissance man. He says, in seeking to envision the person whom the media of the 70s most admire and seek to emulate or copy, I keep coming back to the Renaissance man. He is a man not so much of encyclopedic knowledge, he does not know everything, but of encyclopedic interest. He is interested in everything. Now this man is the man the world listens to. So watch very carefully, because I'm going to pick out the eyes of the Renaissance man to show the strengths of the Renaissance. Why people listen. They listen to this man. This is the man of the world. And what are his strengths? He says he is the connoisseur. He is the William Buckley type who seems comfortably at home in any field of inquiry. He's interested in everything. He is a man of wide-ranging interest, of polish, of sophistication, of manners, of taste, of humor. He, is, he makes strong points in a gentle, telling manner. He is civilized. He does not lose his cool. He knows his history, his languages, his poets, his scientists, his sports. He is one of the beautiful people, cultured, cultivated, educated, charming. Johnny Carson type. The, um, you know, the, the kind that is at home with anybody. Ask him any question, you know, they're quite happy to talk about it. That kind of person. 
A contrast is the Reformation man. This man originated in the same period of history, but he is different. The Reformation man is a man of God's book. He is a man of unrelenting purpose and moral passion, a man with a gleam of eternity in his eyes. He is a buttonholer for Jesus Christ. He is looking for revival in the church. His aim is not to go forward so much as to go back, back to the first century, back to the time when God revealed himself in the spoken word. The Reformation man is not a man of pleasantries, but of action. He is God's prophet. He proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glad tidings of great joy. He also pierces men's consciences, warns men of hell and judgment, bids them repent and be saved. To him, mass media are tools provided by God to be used while there is time before the end by the Holy Spirit to draw men into the kingdom. Both streams entered time at the same time. He says our modern society has witnessed an almost complete triumph of the Renaissance man over the Reformation man. He says, my feeling is that Christian, he says, journalists of the 70s, Christians of the 70s should seek to combine the Renaissance man and the Reformation man. We cannot do with one without the other. The Renaissance man today identifies with his hearers, but he has nothing to proclaim to them. The Reformation man has the proclamation, but so often he cannot identify with the people he wants to reach. As an illustration of this combination, consider the Apostle Paul. As Renaissance man, he quoted the Greek poets, Epimenides and, and Menander. And the Reformation man, he quoted Isaiah and Moses and David. You can see this in Acts 17. Paul told the people of Philippi, I've become all things to all men that by some means I might save some. See, and then this is the Renaissance man speaking. But to the people at Corinth, he said, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the Reformation man. And he must be both. Okay, now, I'm going to show you the strengths of this man and how to study your world without becoming worldly. These are the strengths. You can list these strengths if you like. There's four of them. Number one, he is understanding. The reason why he is understanding is because he studies the culture. He spends time studying the culture around him. So he understands what is happening. Two, he is sensitivity. And his sensitivity comes because he is actually involved in the same issues his friends are involved in in the culture in which he lives. He is part of that thing, so he is sensitive to things. Now, all too often, Christians today don't study the culture. They're not involved in those issues. So they come out and they bludgeon through things that are very, very delicate points to people. They speak you know, foolishly on subjects and kids just switch them off because they don't understand. They walked roughshod right over a very, very sensitive and very delicate point because they don't understand just how deep these things are. Three, he, is, he has feeling. This man is a man of feeling because he has been a man centered around experience. He wants to taste everything of life, and so he feels. He feels deeply on some things. And then four, he has what we call rap or rapport because he identifies with the people to whom he speaks. And those are the strengths of the Renaissance man. An understanding, a sensitivity, a feeling, and a rapport. 
And can the Christian capture these? Yes, he can. Without getting into the messes the Renaissance man gets into. How do you become a Renaissance man? One, look. The way to become involved in understanding what is happening is not necessary to extend uh, the time that you spend on any one issue more, tremendously more than you have been doing in the past, but to utilize all the senses that you have already used in exposing yourself to part of the culture you're already exposed to and to begin to use them intelligently. And I'll show you why. Look, first of all, use your eyes. All around you there are examples of what is happening to the world. And we go blind through this world. We don't open our eyes and look. We need God's kind of vision. And how do you do this? I'll give you some things. In art. As a chemist, I have never been interested in art. No way. Art, I could, you know, I look at these crazy looking, I said, what in the world is that, man? There's no logic in it. It's garbage. See, I just, that. and then when I, when Schaefer got hold of me, <laughs> well, I got hold of Schaefer, I'm not sure which one it was. I realized just how important. I said, okay, Winky Pratney, you can speak to scientists without number, but can you talk to an artist? No. I don't know what to say to him. Here, have some paint while I talk to you about the Lord. <laughs> so I said, you open your eyes, man, and look. And so now, when I sit down, I look at paintings for crying out loud. I've looked at them before. What is that garbage? See? But now I look and say, what is this guy trying to see? And I am the dumbest art critic, but man, I have got some heavy illustrations since I've opened my eyes. I was in Fran San Francisco, took me to one of these coffee bars, and I saw on the wall the scariest painting I've ever seen in my life. It was a picture, stubbly grass like this, and there was one little girl right in the front here, soon see what kind of artist I am, and she had these big eyes. The, you know those big eye paintings? You know the, the big eyes with tears dripping, and you weep all over the place when you look at them? She had eyes like that, but there were no tears in her eyes. They're just wide, big, open eyes. And the scary thing about the painting, there was another guy back here, and he wasn't scary. He was just hidden in the grass looking at her. She was close up. His eyes were open too. The sun in the sky was not shining. It was just a dead, flat, white disk. And everything in the whole painting was brown. Yellow, brown, no greens, nothing. Just, just simply brown. And then this white, dead, flat disk. It looked dead as... The deadest looking world, no grass, just stubbly, prickly things like a burned over field. And the scary thing was this. The only blue in the whole painting, and these were children, the only blue in the whole painting was in the kids' eyes. And the scary thing was that both these kids had their eyes wide open and they were seeing the whole world and they nothing inside their eyes at all, just open, dead glass eyes. And you look right down into their soul and there was nothing there. They were just dolls with their eyes open, looking at the whole world. And these, my friend, are children. The kids who have dreams. The kids to whom a little kid, whom a butterfly means the whole world, but they saw everything and there was nothing. And these are the kids of this generation. Wide open and saw nothing. Look, open your eyes and watch. And then, other things that you look at. There's television. Now, Jerry Rubin in his book, Do It, very active title, 
says our greatest weapon is a color television set, by which he means the force of the mass media to get across various ingredients of a revolution are just incredible. So if you are watching a television program, for goodness sake, don't look and let the thing wash over your mind. Ask yourself, what is happening here? I think every preacher, for instance, whoever takes a homiletics class in a Bible college ought to study somebody like Johnny Carson for one good whole 15 minutes. I see guys like this. <coughs> Johnny Carson came out like that, you would laugh. Why? Because young audiences watch television when one person talks to them, one to one, like this. See? So you know he's not talking about somebody else. Not this. Hello out there, all your friends in television land. See that? What a lie. Hiding behind a pulpit. The television generation has said, I don't want you to talk to a crowd. I want you to talk to me. Billy Graham learnt this, for instance. He uh, ran these different television specials, and one of the things he had, he had a 60-minute special. And they shot what they thought was enough film in the crusade. You know, I'm standing there preaching and zeroing a few shots of the crowd and then back preaching and back to the Bible and these things. They finished their series, shot all the film, people all went home, they found out they hadn't shot enough. They needed another 10 minutes. And what are they going to do? They brought Graham back and they put him in the empty stadium. And he stood there with his coat and he said, I have come back to the stadium. The crusade is over now and the crowds have gone home. But I want to talk to you. And they said that's the most powerful 10 minutes they ever put over television. Why? One to one, see? That's what you can learn with your eyes open. Communication. I watched one program, Mannix or something. This dude was breaking open a drawer in the darkness. He opens a drawer like this. The light snaps on. He turns around. The camera backs up. And he's not in that place anymore. He's in an office, 50 miles across town. Now, the adult goes, huh? What happened? One second he was there, and now he's gone. See, the kid takes it. Oh, well, of course he moved. He just gets it like that. I've noticed something. Kids today seem to have an attention span where adults can concentrate for 30 minutes no kid seems to be able to concentrate for more than 4.5 minutes. And so, what does the speaker do who wants to involve all people at once so they're listening? Well, he picks out each individual one and he talks to them. And he changes subjects fast so that kids can fill in. The preacher who stands up and says, Now, friends, here is an illustration. Glory. <laughs> then he gives an illustration, see? Then he says, now, the moral of this illustration is, then he tells you the moral, the application of this illustration is, boom, and then what we ought to do with an illustration like this, boom, and the kids, they know what to do with an illustration like this. <laughs> they, they left at the first four and a half minutes, and now they're writing little notes, you know, I love you, and passing them back. Just, goodness me, see, watch, learn from television. You'll learn some tremendous things about this rapid shifting of, of, of young people's senses. And that's one thing you learn, that no course will ever teach you. You watch. Watch how montages are being used. Flash, flash, flash. I counted. It seemed like a quarter of a second for each image. 
Just like that. The boy kids picked it up, picked it fast. So you can learn their kind of sensitivity. You won't labor long and glunkily over one thing. Glunkily is not a word, I just invented it. <laughs> On films. How do you learn enough about a movie without going to it? Now movies used to be my particular thing. We went five times a day to movies. So I have a problem with movies, see? That was part of my whole life. Not only that, my mother staged these big concerts. She raised $20,000 in New Zealand for one movie theater, and we got lifetime passes for all the chain. 36 movie houses in the whole... <laughs> and right after that, I got saved. But how does a Christian who doesn't have much time or maybe not the inclination to go and see various type films, how does he... Um, how does he stay up so he at least knows a little bit about something? Well, you could look at reviews and things, but I suggest if you're going to use this, do two things. Get a review from a straight press and get a review from an underground press. So you get both sides of the story. Why do I say read rather than watch? Well, there are some things you cannot control when you watch. You can always close a book, but man, it's pretty hard to close a film. See, if you're sitting there and something freaky is going to come and you, you, don't, you, don't want to, you don't want to listen to it, you could stick your fingers in your ears and close your eyes and shrink into a little ball on the floor and go, ah, so nobody will listen. But the people behind you won't like that. So it is a little harder to control the content of what gets into your head from a film. But this is what I do. Whenever there's a significant film that's come out and I don't get a chance to see it, or I, I don't want to go and see it, then I buy the book on it. And there's always a book on it. Some of them even got the whole screenplay, Easy Rider, the whole screenplay. So you can say, well, I remember in this particular pan camera shot. And, you know, and uh, the beauty of this is, by using that, the kid comes up to you and says, did you see the movie The Barber? You say, no, I didn't, but I read the book. And you can, you can tell them, see, what you, you can say, what did you think of that particular, how do they treat that? Did they do that in a film? Here's some titles that you ought to get. Rosemary's Baby is one. The first book on the occult, The Birth of the Antichrist, a very deeply scary book, but still probably one of the top 100 movies in the last six, seven years. 2001 Space Odyssey, Significance, is the first book where science has found an answer to how man happened to rapidly get from a blob to where he was. Creatures from outer space came in and helped direct his evolution, so it accelerated it. Uh-huh, see? Uh, books like The Strawberry Statement and uh, various other goodies like that. There's a whole list of them. Uh, you can have a look at my library out there afterwards. Um, and then talk with the kids who have seen it. Be interested in what they've seen. Say, no, what did you get out of that? Well, it was one part, you know, and, you, you let them, and the next kid you see, he says, well, I saw a friend of mine and I read the book, but he said that. What did you think of that? And you've got quite enough. You don't have to be a man of knowledge. You have to ma be a man of interest. Do you see the difference? A man of knowledge knows everything there is to know, but they don't, you don't have to know everything. You have to be interested in everything, and there's the difference. Thirdly, fashions are also a very interesting key. On uh, life, I think it's life or look, one of the two. 1970, the first article with the uni have you seen those new unisex things big old see everybody looks the same in them 
they, they, uh, they, you know, if they're, if they're wearing trousers and things, both the girls and the boys look the same, or they wear big shapeless robes, the unisex, and you get an idea of this uh, philosophic homosexuality that Schaefer talks about and that mixture of the opposites coming into the culture. And uh, some funny things here. Quickly, put down the word, listen, jukeboxes. You go out to eat and you sit down there and some kid feeds that thing. And it's going over your head. Listen, what is it saying? Now there's all kinds of songs today, man, that will tell you if you really want to know fast what is happening to the culture. Study the top 40. There are some really scary songs. George Harrison's Sweet Lord. You think, oh, wonderful, George Harrison's become a Christian, you know. <laughs> Sweet Lord and all that, and it sounds like hallelujah behind you. Listen real carefully. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Guess who's, maybe I'll be there to share the land that they'll be given away when we all get together. Ooh, these things are happening, see. Listen, listen to the music and the way you do it is use all available exposures you have. Now, say you've got something mechanical to do, like soldering, something you don't have to think in. Man, a good thing to do is to take an FM or AM radio and just plug it up to a cassette. A tape recorder is one of the most valuable aids you can have in the ministry today. Plug it up there and sit there with your finger on the button, and the moment film comes over, you think may be significant, bap that button. And do that an intelligent 30 minutes a month. The kid will come up to you and say, Have you heard that new song? I say, Yes. And the analysis of that is, boom, 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 boom. He says, Wow. See, you have spent time over the thing. How can the Christian do this? Because he knows where the world is going. He has an idea already of the philosophies that shape some of the songs. So he can pick out that which is significant. And you as a Christian, when you criticize, you can criticize three ways. You can criticize the techniques of the man as an artist, say, did he do it well? You can criticize whether he got across his point okay. And you can say, yes, he did it well, he got across his point very well, and then utterly reject his philosophy as a Christian without putting him down as a person. Do you see that? So you don't come out and say, there's smelly old Rolling Stones. See? You say, if they did a good album, these two things, then deal with that. Say, but ah, I don't buy the philosophy at all. Now, I'll show you in a little while uh, one of the groups in one of the books, and you'll see just how much thought some of these kids have put into their songs. So, do that. While we're talking about listen, too, uh, when you're watching television, tape, get a tape recorder. Man, there's so many fantastic things Christians can use coming over TV. I have a tape from this occult thing that ran just a little while back, a couple of weeks back. I have... Um, Anton Sandler LeVay reading out the Devil's Prayer, which is a counterfeit of the Lord. Our Father which art in hell, glory to your name. Got it all on tape. And the kid says to me, oh, what is this? And you bop and you hit that button and there it is on tape. And think of the use you can make of this for, for communicating with kids. He said, he didn't say that, did he? He said, you want to hear him saying it? Bang, and hit the, hit the tape. And the guy says himself, he said, oh, maybe he did say it. See, this is a, a tremendous thing. There's all kinds of specials that are run on many different problems and more and more open, frank things, you can get them right off that thing. When they run a whole day of the new sexual revolution or something, then tape it. Tape whatever you can. 
and use them. Think of them. Ask yourself as a Christian, how do I answer this? And it's powerful. Now, about your songs, one of the best ways I've found to get into a rock thing to understand what is happening without listening to too much, I do not have time nor the inclination to plow through 10,000 rock songs in order to find out what's happening. So I do three things. One, I pick up rock papers. I just scan through them if they're in a, you know, on a music stand and look at both. Look at the bubblegum ones for the junior high schoolers if you're going to talk to junior, you know, the Marv and the Rave and all this idiot. You might throw up while you're doing it, but <laughs> do it anyway. The point is not whether you like it or not. The point is what is happening with it. Whether what you like or not is culture. We're talking about what these kids are into. We want to find out what their heads are at and get into them, see? Now, this, um, uh, pick those ones up and then also pick up whatever you can from underground papers. What does the underground press think is a significant album? And then talk with the kids you're talking to. Listen, if you don't know anything about the particular thing, don't go up and say, well, I happen to believe all rock and roll is of the devil anyway. So don't talk, you know, don't do dumb things like that. Listen, say, oh, really, what did that say to you? And listen, and then use it. Pile it away, and pretty soon your computer will have a backlog to work with. And that's amazing, just how much can we learn. But if you pick out the songs that kids think are significant, everywhere I go, I say, if you find a good song, send it to me. Man, I've got thousands of records up there. Kids have sent me all over the country, because they all found them significant. And they'll say, here's the lyrics of one, and boy, you, this is really a wild one. Boy, this one, really, and I'm reading, I've got all kinds of information. Why can't you do that? Just use what you... Use every possible opportunity. If you're talking with a rock musician, then suck it out of him. Find out what's there, and then so you can come back in later. And so I was talking to a guy who was in that. See, boom. But you've got to open your mind. You've got to listen, listen, listen. When we come into Reformation, man, we'll give you those. Three. Learn. You notice I'm giving these all with L so that you can remember them. Basically, so they look nice in this paper here. Learn. And you ought to have some magazines because the mass media. Here's a picture of the culture. Here's 80% of the people. And up here, the top. 10%, let's say, are the culture definers. These are the people who invent what is to happen down here. These are the people who write songs, novels, plays, etc. These people down here are the people who listen to the records, read the newspapers, read the magazines, read the novels, watch the films, watch TV, listen to records. They might not even have a clue what's happening down there. They just experience it. In between on the misty flats, guess what group of people live? the church. The church who never watches these things because they're worldly and who never studies that because they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. They must be idiots anyway because they're unsaved. Do you wonder why we can't speak to anybody except the people who sit next door to us in the pew? Because we don't understand what's happening. And I've noticed more and more in mass crusades the people who go up are not secular people. They are church-orientated, church-backgrounded people. They are usually backsliders coming home, not truly secular people. And to speak to them, man, you have to use their own language. Here is a missionary. Uh, she is in training, let's say. She spends four years in Bible college, a couple of years in language school. Maybe she gets that 
uh, in that together. Then she goes over to that country and she begins to learn the customs of the people. She begins to understand the peculiarities and she starts to know how to speak to the people in the language. And let's say after five years, she really starts to get through to these people. No missionary is worth his salt or his salt unless they're really willing to spend time finding out what's peculiar about that culture and learning how to... You don't go up to a, a Muslim and say, Muhammad was a bum, now let me tell you about Jesus. You know, you, you may do that and he'll probably tear his robes and cut your head off and a few other things. You'll say, oh, I died a martyr for Jesus. You didn't, you died of stupidity. <laughs> if I said to you there's a culture of people, millions of them, and very, very few people are taking even a few minutes to learn their language, to understand their peculiarities, to know their customs so they can speak the gospel. But if they'll only spend, I say, three weeks, three weeks of knowing what's happening with them, they will be able to lead hundreds and thousands of these kids to Christ. And that's who they are, young people. Where is this culture? The United States of America. Any culture. Because kids, even in this culture, are so divorced from their parents' concepts, they're two totally different worlds. You'll have to learn it. You've got to earn the right to be heard. You can't go up and say, the Bible says this. You have to say, do you feel like this? See? And when the guy says, yeah, yeah, that's right. Do you remember what so-and-so said? Yeah. See? Then, look what God says. Oh, wow. See? You've earned the right to be heard. That's the way it must go. Now, also, put key novels, put those down too. Check the ones that really stay up there in the, in the novel list and check the ones that are really significant. Kids keep... If more than two kids come to you and ask you about a book, you better get it. It's as simple as that. Get it. Buy it. Get it in paperback wherever possible. And then poetry. Learn. Just pick up some poetry and listen. Listen. Get some of Rod McEwen's. Get, you know, whatever. In other words, cover the culture as well as you can in different things. And live. Here's the most important part. This means involvement in key issues. You know what Ezekiel did? Sat down where they sat. Speechless. Just felt what they felt. Then he got up and spoke to them. Do you do that? Do you listen to what is happening? Do you listen to your world? In the book of Jonah, Jonah is asleep on the boat and the sinners on the boat wake Jonah up and say, Jonah, Jonah, call on your God. Can't you see we're perishing? And it's a dirty, rotten shame when the sinners have to wake up the Christians. And that's what's happening. Listen to this song by Steppenwolf on their album Monster. You fill this house with things of gold, talking about the church, while handing crumbs to the old and poor, and yet you preach about being pure and wonder why we're laughing. In your old way you try to find us, but we can't follow what's behind us. Too much blind faith, that'll blind us. Though sometimes it's a blessing. But I remember when I still embraced you, a little prayer would ease my mind till I saw that you hide from the misery outside, so I left you behind. That's a secular rock group. Probably one of the top acid rock groups in this nation. And this is what they say. 
All the other teachings that I tried were about the same. One grain of truth mixed with confusion caused by man. Since you're around here anyway, might as well try to help you get back up on your feet again. The second of all, saying, get up. We need somebody to do some work out in the street. You might just touch somebody. Break away from yesterday and start to think about today. That's the second of all. Involvement. That means it will be costly. You say, but listen, if I listen to this music and, and if I don't feel good, man, when I finish with that, I don't, I don't like doing that. Do you think I feel good when I have to speak to a homosexual? When I have to talk to a girl who sold her body into prostitution? Do you think I feel good? Do you think Jesus felt good? When I've come back in from witnessing, I felt like I needed a bath in the love of God. But I'll go back again because they're running from my father and they need somebody to come and remind them of that reality they're running from. And the Bible picture of God is that God is looking for the sinner. And the sinner is not looking for God. So you must go and you must speak to that man even when he doesn't want to listen. And if you come up to him and you say, hey, you know, I hear that that you're really searching for God, see? Where's my things? It says, here man, you know, I found that you I know that you're really searching for God and stuff and I got this tract here for you. And the guy says, oh really? What's this about? Well, it's about becoming Christian. Oh, very interesting. Yes, marvelous. Why should I go back? Because that guy is breaking God's heart. That's why. Why should I keep tracking him down? Because God is like the hound of heaven that's going up looking, and every time they say, I'll say, uh-oh, see? And I'll say, uh-uh, I'm on his side too. See, that's the Christian spirit, that costly spirit of adventure that says, I will go and get some rebels, and I'll bring them back to the Father's house. They go run this way, I'll run the other way, and I'll be there. They'll shoot me, they'll kill me, I don't care. I'll keep tracking them for Jesus' sake. And you wait till that concept grips your heart. Costly years. People will say, why are you spending time with all those dirty, rotten sinners? Birds with a feather flock together, you know. <coughs> Let me tell you something that happened, man. In England, a group of university fellowship students got together, realized they weren't doing anything, and they decided, well, we better do something for God. Let's get out and really witness and really get through so they had a series of discussion meetings on what to do. These went on for about four months. One of the guys thought to himself, where have we been talking for four months about what we haven't done anything? So he said, I'm going to do something. So he got out and he was walking out to the meeting thinking, what shall I do? And here's, he goes through London's red light district and here's a prostitute comes up to him, propositions him. And he's standing there and he, he takes a girl out, buys her a meal and then tells her about the Lord. And she breaks down and cries right at the top. She says, you're the first guy that's never wanted to buy me for my body. She, she gives her life to the Lord, see. Then he goes on to the meeting. He misses it, see. It's too late. The guy said, what happened to you last week? You'll never believe me, he said, if I told you. Why weren't you at our meeting? So he told them. You know what they did? They kicked him out of the group. Now, can you believe that? What would they have done to Jesus? 
for goodness sake. Well, the Pharisee said, do you know what kind, if this guy was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman is weeping all over the place here. You will be criticized if you're going to do this. That's why it's costly. Now, second half is Reformation man. Here are the Reformation man's strengths. One, has a zeal, which is founded on absolutes. He knows real rights and real wrongs. He's not uncertain like the Renaissance man. Founded on absolutes. He has true rights and true wrongs, and so he's not, he's sure. Nobody else is in it. Well, I say, well, maybe, maybe not, you know, it's all this. But he says, thus saith the Lord. He's sure. He's, I've titled my seminars up in San Diego, wanted a wall to lean on that doesn't move. Kids are leaning on walls, man, and they're moving away. See, they'll say, ah, a nice, and it moves. There's nothing to lean on. God has a wall to lean on. It will not move. I had a kid, he came over and talked to us in Seattle, Washington. He said, you think Jesus is a crutch? He said, he's a crutch to me. He's a wheelchair. He's the whole thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then they have a wisdom, a wisdom that does not come from intelligence, wisdom that comes from knowing true truth about God. And you see, this wisdom is a supernatural wisdom. They could look at Peter and John and say, these unlearned, ignorant men, they must have been with Jesus, that master teacher. They know real truth. And because they know that, they can punch it into the world. And it, the beautiful thing is you can put the gospel there and people shoot at it, bang, bang, pow, pow, all over the place. And when the smoke clears and the bullets have all bounced off, the gospel is still there and all the philosophies are bleeding and shot all around. It's because God knows what the, the, real, uh, the real truth about everything is and he just shows it to you and you just simply say it. You don't have to be brilliant. You just say, well, this is what God says. And the other guy says, well, my particular philosophy says, and you say, well, God says that. Boom, and he shot down his reds. And he says, man, it took me 90 years to put this philosophy. You shot it down in 10 minutes. It's horrible. See? <laughs> That's how Paul could stand up and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. He knew what he was talking about. And then, love. That's something that the world talks about and doesn't do because they don't know how to be unselfish. God does, see, and he gives this to his children. A challenge, you will follow me. You'll unselfishly choose the highest good in whatever I give you to do. And boy, that world is longing to see this kind of love. Love flowing from an unselfish life. And then four. Power. Power that comes from the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Not flower power, pucker power, but Holy Ghost power. God power. That kind of power. Now that's the strong man, the Reformation. He is wise, he is loving, he is powerful, and he is zealous. And how does he get these? These are areas now of study that you ought to pay deep and close attention to. On the far left-hand side, I'm going to show you the basic, um, good call it, the problems that this de deals with. The middle is the, over here, problem. Here's the basic problem secular kids are dealing with. One, a destruction of definition. 
And there is no definitions of anything anymore. There's nothing firm. And so the Christian Reformation man must be sure, by which we mean he has a firm grasp of God's absolutes. This is the power of this message of moral government we're preaching, that God has some real absolutes, some real rights, some real wrongs, that they make sense and they come through like a bomb. And uh, this firm grasp of God's absolutes means that you must be willing to live these too. See, here are kids. They're looking for forms of control. They go into uh, the physical law for control and they come up with astrology. The stars will give them guidance. They go into the uh, biological law and the evolutionary process will give them direction. And they go off here to the um, economic changes and they think, well, Marxism will give us guidance and all these different things. They're looking for somebody to come along and say, this is right, this is real, and see it, see it work. Now listen to this. I want to read you something from the book, Steppenwolf. I quoted to you from the group, Steppenwolf, just a little earlier. Listen to this one from the book. I want to read you out a little section. And this is the group, Steppenwolf, is a, is a really hard and acid rock group. They have pushed the um, uh, idea of drugs with the, and uh, uh, occult and violence. John Kay talks about the strategic use of violence to overthrow what is happening. But uh, listen to this from the book, Steppenwolf, that the group uses as a Bible. And this is the man they hate most. Very interesting. Herman Hesse wrote this in 1920. The man they hate most. The man they hate most strives neither to be saintly nor its opposite. The absolute is his abhorrence. He hates the absolutes. He may be ready to serve God, but not by giving up the flesh pots. He is ready to be virtuous, but likes to be easy and comfortable in this world as well. In short, his aim is to make a home for himself between two extremes in a temperate zone, without violent storms and tempests. And in this he succeeds, though it be at the cost of that intensity of life and feeling which an extreme life affords. And then he says, a man cannot live intensely except at the cost of self. His harvest, this man, is a quiet mind which he prefers to being possessed by God as he does comfort to pleasure, convenience to liberty, and a pleasant temperature to that deathly inner consuming fire. The man the secular world hates most is the one who is neither a saint nor a sinner, but in between. And I have news for you. That is the man God hates most. I would that you were cold. Or hot. Because you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. And you see, that's why the Christian man must believe in absolutes and practice them. He must believe in real rights and real wrongs, and never the twain do meet in his life. He goes on with God, and if he is wrong, he admits he is wrong. He doesn't say, well, that's just part of Christianity. He lives a holy life, and he demonstrates it. Why? Because nobody's going to believe that you believe in real rights and wrongs. If you believe it theoretically only, it better come out in your life. And I have seen what happens when kids see that people love God with all their hearts and all their souls and all their minds and all their strengths and they hate sin. They say, I have lived the life of the sinner. 
and I see the life of the men of God and I want to be like that. Can you imagine what would happen if every lukewarm person in the world was kicked out and you just said saints or sinners but nobody in between? What do you think would happen to the, the sinners? They saw, they saw their lives in contrast with the others. It's these middle counterfeits that God wants to clean right out of that thing. It happens in a church. You've got to get rid of the in crowd and make them the up crowd. Kick out the in crowd. Give them the facts. If they say, don't like them, I'm going to leave. You say goodbye then. When you're ready to give your life to God, come back. And when that happens, man, you can't believe. You just say, remember the guy who went into the, the thing? This guy said, oh, brother, did you have a good time? He said, I had a marvelous time. He said, you have, have any additions to the church? He said, no, but I had some blessed subtractions. <laughs> Two. Second problem, the hypocrisy of the plastic age. Plastic. Mass-produced and funny. So what does a Christian have to be? Sincere. One of the Bible words, meaning perfect, sincere. Meaning, a heart that is open and honest before God. Paul could say this, well, I've tried to exercise myself, but I have a conscience void of offense towards God and man. You can look at me and this is the man I really am. Not the man I put on special shows for in preaching. This is me, normally. And man, when a kid comes into your life and he sees you, he don't want to hear your big sermon up in front of a bunch of people. He wants to see what you are really like in ordinary everyday life and that's what convinces. And if you want to be a leader for Jesus Christ, you're going to have to be willing to let kids live with you and see your real life. And if that is garbage, you get it cleaned up. Because kids want to say, are you, what are you really like, man? Not when you're up on a stage prancing around. What are you really like? You know what I like to do with a bitter, rebellious kid? I like to capture him and keep them right here in this place with my wife and I for a month and just let them get up in the morning with us and see our ordinary everyday life with our hassles and our problems and just look at our lives and then see what happens when you preach the gospel to that man. We've had kids stay here. They've come in, stayed. I never said, you know, one girl, she came over from New Zealand, she was heading out to England. She dropped in here and she said, could I stay? She said, welcome, you know, pull up place. We made a little place for her to stay. She went with us. Sunday, she wanted to go to Disneyland. And, uh, you know, we say, Oh, you can't go to Disneyland on Sunday. You've got to come to church with us and get saved, you rotten sinner. Been here a whole week and you still haven't given your life to Christ. And we've done all these things for you. What a rat. See, we didn't... We said, you want to go to Disneyland? Fine, all right. We'll drop you off. And when do you want to be picked up? She went to Disneyland all day. Had a marvelous time. Wore herself completely out. But way back home, she started asking questions. about Disneyland is about God. We didn't say, well, it's about time that we shared with you the four spiritual laws. We didn't say that stuff, man. We just, we just simply said, answer the questions he dealt with. We waved a goodbye. Just didn't feel like that was the time. See, waved a goodbye. She wrote me a letter. We got it three weeks later. She said, I'm here in England. First thing I did when I arrived was give my life to Jesus Christ. Beautiful. See, I don't have to do all this. God has got a whole chain. They've got to see reality. Here is number three. Oh, 
I was going to tell you something about that thing, right. The truly truthful, the sincere thing, the honest, the reality. Here's a funny thing. A guy went into a church and he wore a wig, a long hair wig. Now his hair is shorter than mine is, but he wore this long wig. And he got up and preached to everybody. <laughs> and only the pastor knew he had a wig on. Nobody else had ever met him. And he preached on the generation gap. See? And this was the content of a sermon. You don't, the reason why there's a gap is because adults don't listen to kids what they're saying because they turn off by what they look like. And the adults were saying, we'll let this hippie into our church, man. <laughs> See that? And he preached for 30 minutes on this. And when he finished, he tore his wig off. And everybody went, oh, oh. You know, they got an awful fight. He pulled, he got scalped, right? In the, pulled his hair off, boom, threw it down there. And then he said, how many of you heard my sermon? And, Ooh, there was a lot of red faces that day. Nobody could give him praise. They don't know what he... Now, I, let me tell you something about hypocrisy. Ever since long hair has come in, I have never heard a preacher preach on Samson. Never once. <laughs> have you? <laughs> I preached a sermon on Samson three days ago, and we had 70 kids come to give their lives to Christ. Now, that's weird, man. You wait. You wait until the bald hair comes in. You wait till the skinheads come in from England. The 10,000, right, no hair at all, man, nothing. They've got just bald heads. And every preacher in the city will pull out all his sermons on Samson and says, if you really want to be a man of God, you grow your hair long, man. Don't you have it? I guarantee, I tell you, that's a Prattney prophecy for you. And then the deep personalization of society. In other words, people are not known or loved as people. So, the true Christian must be social. In the fullest sense of that word. He must be a social person. Somebody who is fun to be with. He must learn to be truly human. And by truly human, I do not mean sinful. I do not equate humanity with equal to sinfulness, like the new theology. No way. I mean, he must be a man who is truly a human person. One, he must know how to enjoy life. So many kids are turned off from Christian parents because their parents don't know how to enjoy life. They don't really enjoy it. So they figure, like, yeah, that's Christianity. My parents never seem any fun. To enjoy life, to get a great kick out of it. And uh, I like taking kids with me and spending time with them. And they laugh their heads off and then they listen. When their mouths are open, I hit them as hard as I can. See, with the gospel. I go up and play ping pong until my hands fall off with kids. I'll beat them as hard as I can, see? And while I'm out on the ping pong table, they're asking questions, see? They want to know whether this preacher that stands around there way up on the stage and does all these things is a real person. Or whether he comes out and does his show. Of course he's supposed to be preaching. That's what they pay him for, isn't it? What is he really like? I have a joke book. You don't have to do this if you like, but I keep one. I keep a joke book. And every gut-wrenching joke I ever hear, I write it down and I put it in a little book, just like this. And then I like laughter. 
So I put it in here. And every time I'm in the middle of something and I've got to get something across, a joke comes back to me. Aha, I say it, boom. Mamma mia, what a spicy meatball. And bang, you are in. Sam, like that. And when kids are, there's a weird thing about kids. They can laugh, ha ah, and next they can be dead serious. And just do it like that. That's television again. See? And they'll be la ha, boom, and dead serious. Just like that. Bang, 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 bang. And you can hold them, and you can, otherwise you can get up there and read out your text and your sermon. They're gone. They're gone. They're off and away. You try to do things that, that get, their get their attention and stick it. Stick barbs in their mind so that the gospel hangs in on those things. Now, here, join their games. Get in with them. I mean, I don't mean to say that you 40-year-olds have to get out there and play soccer or something. I'm not... But you join in. You girls playing soccer are really funny, man. It's really something. But... Wherever possible that you can join in into what they're doing and, and take part in life with them, get in there, hang in there. Uh, here's another one. Avoid mechanical techniques. Boy, they really turn off of those things. Mechanical technique. You know. This is the right way to do it. I think the thing that kids most liked about the Evangelical College meetings is that I broke every rule of speaking that they ever had. I was supposed to stand before the pulpit. They were supposed to give me 15 minutes. I took an hour. <laughs> I left the pulpit. I <laughs> left everything. I did everything with swing on chandeliers because they didn't have chandeliers there. And they loved it. They loved it to bits. I sat down on the thing and talked to them from the edge of it. And they, they had a ball. They were part of it. And while they were listening and laughing, they got right into the Spirit of God moving in their hearts. Tremendous things happen. They've got to be real, and that comes out of being a truly social person. And I mean, too, not only the laughter thing, but also the willingness to help. Kids come up, kid comes up to me, and he's, you know, he's broke or something. I give him whatever I got. Not, and you better pay this back. And by the way, I'm giving you this because I'm a Christian, and the Lord commands me. I don't just give it to him. If it's in my pocket, praise the Lord. Take it. And, you know, if I'm giving it. For the Lord's sake. Remember David Wilkerson walking through the, and the guy says, okay, if you preach, you got shoes, man, to go to church. I ain't got shoes. Take them. Put them on. Well, I want your shoes, man. You wear them. You complain, you take them. And that guy came to Christ. Uh, one overseas missionary thing lists all their overseas assets at one dollar. Maybe it's two cost of living has gone up, but thousands of dollars of stuff at one dollar, which means that anything is expendable for the gospel. Nothing is ours anyway. It's loaned to us. Selfishness of the individual man. Karl Marx said selfishness can be annihilated by a series of revolutions. Lenin said violence necessary. Buddha said selfishness can be annihilated by annihilating the person by taking away his desires and by taking away his individuality. Jesus Christ said selfishness can be dealt with by first giving your life to the one person who has never been selfish and allowing him to forgive and cleanse your life and make you a truly unselfish person. Talking to a young Marxist in Albuquerque, New Mexico, he said, man, I hate this system, I want to change it. I said, I too want to change my world, but how can you change your world when you can't even change yourself? 
You talk about cleaning selfishness out of society, and you're as selfish as society is. You know, I've come to a man who can give you power to change and no longer be selfish. That God, man, Christ Jesus. And here, the thing here is the servant. We must be servants. Not the great Maharishi with all the answers. The man who is willing to bear water and wash feet. That is the man. The Christian man, the Christian woman, the servant. Servant. This is what the Lord Jesus did. He said, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give my life a ransom for many. And I mean by this that if you want to define love, love is measured by sacrifice. It's in John 15, 9 to 14, John 17, 21 to 26. Servant. Show practically you love these kids. I have hip kids come in. Some Christian friend says, Hey man, this is my hip kid, you know, he's a friend. I go up and I hug him, I say, Welcome. And he freaks out. <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to stand at a respectable, deodorized distance and spray Lysol in the air. <laughs> and then say, Yes. <clears throat> what is your problem? And can I help you? <laughs> Goodness me. <laughs> Talk to him for four hours and not even learn his name. Yes, I'm deeply interested in you. What did you say your name was again? You know what God says? I put your name on the palm of my hands. Have you ever read the telephone directories in Scripture? Abigat, Begat, who's that? Begat, does that? Begat, flu's that? Have you ever seen us? How many of you got a tremendous blessing recently from reading those telephones? Not many of you. But I got two blessings from those. One, playing biblical Scrabble, where uh, <laughs> if you get a Bible name, then you get twice the points, and you know, you're going to wipe out a person, the whole board, say, look, man, this is, he's a baptist of the lap, you know, and this is a Bible name I learned, and they say, oh, no, he got 10,000 points on one thing. That's one blessing, but the second one is more spiritual. It's, uh, it is this fact that there are a whole bunch of people in the Bible who never did anything, as far as we know. But they're important enough for God to put in his book. And that's something these kids have got to understand. They're important as individuals. God does not come up and say, all right, Christian one, bop! Christian two, bop! Christian three, bop! Look at my army of robots out to do Goodness me! Every person individual dealt with as an individual, called like... That's why these mechanical, all-together plans, you know, that... Uh, one pill cures all ills. Baloney, there's only one pill that does that, and it's a gospel. You've got to individually deal with people. Take them where they are. Bring them through to the to knowledge of the Christ that will meet them right where they are. They're strong. Need somebody to, to, to give them tenors. And the, the leaderless need a leader. And those that are lonely need a friend. And you can meet them with the gospel right at their point of need. God does. And here's another one. Last one is the occult hunger. There is a tremendous hunger for spiritual power, and that has given us an occult revolution. And so the Christian finally must be spirit natural in Joy Dawson's beautiful terms. Yes. Spirit natural. Not like this. Well, mm, Jesus didn't say this. 
Now you disciples watch. This is going to be a word of wisdom. Whoopsie. Not that stuff, man. Just as you go in your normal everyday life, boom, things happen. Things happen. Things happen. We're gone. Supernatural things. Talking to the guy from the Baha'i faith. And I was talking to him, and he was talking about... Uh, he said, well, all religions are the same. I said, look, Jesus said this. He said, he didn't say that. I said, what do you mean he didn't say that? He said, well, the disciples thought he said it. And I said, have you ever read the Bible? He said, oh, many times. I said, have He said, yes, there's a lot of problems, a lot of mistakes and stuff. I said, are you qualified to criticize the scriptures? He said, yes. I said, oh, really? I said, do you know Hebrew and Greek? He said, yes. And that blew my mind. I never met a guy. I said, you do? He said, yeah, yeah. And all these kids sitting around listening to every word, I thought, dear Lord, I haven't got a clue what to do with this guy. And I'm talking to him quite suddenly. God put some words in my head. And I said, you know, you're a liar. He said, what? And I said, what? I'm true. See? <laughs> and I said, you're a liar. And he said, oh, are you idiot? What are you saying? And, then, and this guy said, what do you mean? I said, oh. and, and I said, you have told me lies. And he said, what? You know, it's rotten when words come in your mouth and you're saying, no, you fool, you're going too far. <laughs> I said, I said, you told me you knew Hebrew and Greek. He said, that's right, I do. And then I said to him, you name me the first letter of the Greek alphabet. And he said, um, and he didn't know. It was, a, it was the best lie I've ever seen in my life. Completely straight face, complete authority, and a lie. God exposed them. Now what is that? It's God just coming in, hmm, see, doing weird and freaky things. But you're not being weird and freaky. You're just, it costs. It's scary to do things like you say, yeah, see, but it's coming. It's an amazing thing. I was telling some of the kids here, this girl in college came up deeply in the occult. Uh, she didn't, she couldn't break the thing and she was talking about she hated her stepmother and all this stuff. And she keeps waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning, always, in this deep fear in the room. And she couldn't break it. She'd done everything. And I, you know, the Lord puts things in my mind. And I said, I know how you can get out of that thing. And just came, boom. I said, I know what 2 o'clock means. Why always 2 o'clock in the morning? Why this fear? I said, I know how you can get out. I know what 2 o'clock means. She said, what? I said, 2 o'clock represents your two mothers. And the way you can get out is to forgive your stepmother that you hate. And boy, the spirit of God is came down so strong. All of a sudden, tears jumped out of her eyes. She said, I can't do that. I said, yes, you can. I'll show you. <laughs> Boom, broke all over the place. And beautiful letter, totally clean. Just got a letter. We're reading out to the kids. She said, I'm the kid that you wrote and conned into writing a letter of confession restitution to my mother. Quit grinning at work. I'm clean. And went on. Beautiful things. Man. Tommy Tyson was praying for some people one time. The name of, you know, just this kind of thing or type thing like this. And heal, this kind of thing. And the Lord spoke to him and said, Son, are people healed by the pressure of your hands or by the power of my spirit? And then he said, Son, if you be natural, I'll be supernatural. And this is what God is like. We just to be, don't try to be a spiritual old weird herald, some kind of faith freak or something. Just you be an ordinary, happy, everyday Christian, love with God, staying in His Word, open to His Spirit, and watch God be spirit natural. 
All right, that's the podcast for this week. Uh, It's been a challenge to me. I hope it's been a challenge to you. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. So long.